This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There are growing signs that the United States Supreme Court is stewing in money and conflicts. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're available wherever you get your podcasts and on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. So as we've learned more and more about gifts, money, home purchases, and other deals that Justice Clarence Thomas got from conservative billionaire Harlan Crow, shady deals funneling money to Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny, and millions of dollars going to the wife of Chief Justice Roberts, ethics problems with Justice Alito, I knew that there was only one person for us to call. There's no one more respected in Congress just about anywhere on the judicial system than my old friend, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Senator Whitehouse, thanks for joining us on Beyond Politics. Thanks so much, Paul. Wonderful to be with you again. Today's an interesting day and an interesting time for our talk because you're coming to us straight from a huge Senate hearing on the Supreme Court ethics scandal. Indeed. What are you finding most shocking in everything that you've learned there and in the last few weeks? What's really caught your interest? The shocking thing is that the Supreme Court has set up a system in which it doesn't allow any of its members to be investigated. All of the ordinary steps as a government official, you'll remember how this works in the executive branch and the legislative branch for other judges. If there's an ethics complaint, there's a place where you go file it. And at the place where you go file it, there are people who read it and look through it and sort out the wheat from the chaff. And if there's real wheat there, if there's a real ethics concern to follow, there are staff attorneys who look into it and do some investigative work to find out what the facts actually are. And then there's a decider at the end who compares the conduct that they found to what the rules permit. And that's standard, basic, automatic stuff. And the Supreme Court has none of that. No inbox, no reviewer, no investigation, no conclusion, no nothing. The courts just operate in a sort of cotton ball puff of impunity. You and I are lawyers. You and I have been prosecutors. We've been elected officials. And as lawyers, we lived and died by the ethics rules. We basically kept them at by our right hand to make sure we're, that we were following them. And it seems like just basics that anybody involved in the legal and judicial system would follow a code of ethics, would follow a code of conduct, would know where influence should not happen, and would do everything to avoid avoid conflict. What makes the Supreme Court so different? Why should that be different? Nothing makes it different except for the fact that they have decided that they are going to be each the judge in his or her own case. And as we remember from law school a million years ago, that violates a principle so old 
that it's in Latin. Nemo judex in sua causa. No one judges their own case. And yet here they are all judging their own case. And of course, giving themselves the benefit of the doubt. And in some cases, not even getting to the question involved by refusing to allow any investigation or inquiry into what the actual facts are. It all just dies. So it, that is very frustrating. And it's particularly frustrating to see such basic rule of law violations, setting aside the ethics issues. They're basic principles of rule of law, that if you're before a tribunal and you think it's treating you unfairly, there's a place you can go. That if you have a charge that has credibility to it, it gets answered. That at the end of the day, there is an honest determination of whatever your case was. And those really basic things that are elemental to the kinds of uh, cases that come up to the court and the kind of underlying conduct that comes up to the court, as to the court itself, they don't even follow those elemental principles themselves. Not to mention the fact that we only held the country together in the year 2000 after the Bush v. Gore debacle because the Supreme Court retained such credibility that it was seen as the final word on questions like that. And of course, Vice President Gore bowed to their decision, and we very nearly had a similar situation in the last presidential election. Who knows what the hell is going to happen in 2024? So the Supreme Court's credibility is absolutely crucial to the continuing functioning of the United States of America, and yet they're acting with impunity. So I guess my question is, what are our options? What arrows do we have in our quiver? I know we're going to ask you about your own bill in just a moment. Outside of that, it seems like option one is your colleague, Senator Durbin, led this hearing today. So that's the maybe we can shame them into doing something approach. Your colleague, Senator Ron Wyden, sent the conservative billionaire in question in the Clarence Thomas affair a letter asking for evidence that his gifts complied with federal tax law. So we've got the federal tax law option. Is that it? What can you and your colleagues do here to try and hold them to account? There are a lot of different avenues. There's passing a statute. Uh, there is putting appropriations pressure on them. That's a technique that the judiciary itself has recommended to Congress. There is the bully pulpit. There is our power of oversight and investigation, which Senator Durbin used today. But one thing that's rather important, I think, is that the, by merely drawing continued attention to this subject and drawing out what the really unpleasant facts are, it galvanizes other judges mm. to say to the Supreme Court justices, hey, wait a minute, bucko, we could never do this in our court. What you're saying just isn't true. And when you say that we all behave this way and that there's nothing to see here at the Supreme Court, that takes your bad behavior and makes me have to explain it or cover up for you. And I think judges, a lot of judges, are quite angry at the position the Supreme Court has put them in order for the Supreme Court to indulge itself in conduct that no other judge would be allowed to indulge in. So... You've currently got the leading bill in the Senate to try to address this ethics scandal in the judiciary. Can you help us and our listeners understand what does your bill do? And is there a chance that you'll ever get a Republican or Republicans on board, given all the, the <laughs> given that all the problems seem to be with conservative justices? And I'm sitting here thinking of my of my friend, the guy who hired me, who got me started in my legal career, Justice David Souter. 
and imagining what he would be what he would be thinking about this, a guy who drove the same Volkswagen Rabbit for 35 years and had a yogurt every day for lunch, just a paragon of virtue. My discussions with him over the years on, on a, you know, on a variety of topics, but I just can't imagine what he'd be going through to live through this on the Supreme Court were he still there. Yeah. So a couple of things. First, there are a lot of Americans, whether you're a local school teacher or a member of the United States military, or a state official working in some department, someplace, you have to live under an ethics code. And it's really strict and rigorous. And the idea that you take enormous gifts from people who aren't blood relatives of yours is pretty appalling. And the fact that you've got a Supreme Court justice who should be held to a higher standard, getting these huge gifts, which are a problem on their own, and having it come from a right-wing billionaire who is heavily involved in a variety of schemes to influence the court, including having his picture painted with himself, the billionaire, Clarence Thomas, the judge, and Leonard Leo, the political operative who works on behalf of the billionaires to fix the court. It's, you, you can't make this stuff up. So regular people in regular jobs, Macy Hirono did a great job of going through Home Depot's ethics policy and how they can't even meet the Home Depot ethics policy. There are a lot of people who just see that this is wrong. And unfortunately, the Republicans are so busy trying to cover for this court because it is, in fact, delivering for Republican donor interests more or less nonstop. They have engaged in just every possible kind of distraction theatrics to make sure that the topic gets changed or that it, it's they're almost making our case mm. with the theatricality of their histrionics when we touch on the problem of Justice Thomas's rather unusual behavior. They'll come up for the Oscars, but t tell us about your bill. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. What would it do? So the bill first obliges the Supreme Court to formally adopt an ethics code, which already exists in the judiciary. So really all they're doing is applying it to themselves. If they wanted to make some changes, that's their business. But basically you have to do that. Then in order for it to mean anything, because nominally they already subscribe to it, in order for it to mean anything, you've got to have that process. You got to have the place where you file the complaint. You got to have the person who reads it. You got to have the staff attorneys who investigate it. You got to have the place where somebody compares the conduct to what's legit. And you got to have some public response at the end. They have none of that. So they have to build that. We ask them to clean up their disclosures so that they're no worse than any other judge or any other senior executive or legislative official. We ask them to be clearer about recusals so that they actually have to say why they are or are not recusing themselves. 
uh, when Justice Thomas did not recuse himself from the January 6th case that ended up getting his wife's communications in the insurrection plot, the obvious question is, what did he know about her behavior? He has not been asked that question. Basic stuff. That he should have had to answer why he didn't recuse himself. So put the answer out there. And then a specialty of mine <laughs> is to get the Supreme Court to fix its disclosure rule for amici curiae, friends of the court, people or organizations that write briefs who aren't the parties to the case, but think that their brief will be helpful. So they file one with the court. And that process has been completely overtaken by billionaire funded right wing phony front groups who barrage the court with briefs and little coordinated flotillas of Mickey Curiae. And nobody knows what's going on because they don't disclose who's really behind them. Actually, one place where there's no code of ethics is in podcasting. So that means that there's absolutely no rule that prevents me from throwing your own words back at you, Senator, when you were on this show a year ago. You said, because you're prescient and smart about stuff like this, that the core issue with the Supreme Court is recusal. You cited the AFPF versus Bonta case, yep. which legal nerds can go look up. I had to go look up. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about recusal, because when you talk about amicus curiae briefs and you talk about ethics issues, it does come down to this. Why are justices with conflicts of interest ruling on cases in which they have a conflict of interest? It's insane. Now, Justice Roberts, in declining to testify before your committee today, wrote to you, wrote to the committee and said, look, individual justices have to decide recusal issues because if the full court or a subset of the court were to do it, then you would have an undesirable situation in which the court could affect the outcome of a case by selecting who among its members may participate. Fair enough. I don't want like a subset of the Supreme Court saying, Elena Kagan, you're out. You can't rule on this just because we said so. So we have an even bigger advantage. All right, fine. But we have an absolutely abysmal state of affairs. You were talking about all this, all these like phony front groups. Ginny Thomas draws money from half of them. She helps run the Council for National Policy. They were the groups that advocated for false slates of electors. Her lobbying firm, Liberty Consulting, had clients who filed those briefs before the court. This is crazy. She what was paid directly for years by the Heritage Foundation, not disclosed until the whistle was blown by a reporter on that. Yeah, I'm really preaching to the converted here. I know. I'm just just I just can't get over the chutzpah involved in how nakedly conflicted this all is. Um, what do we do about this? Can we like haul Jenny Thomas in front of a Senate committee? Can we how do we shame them into doing better on this? I'm working to just build the case as best I can for what the problems are so that we can then push on solving them. I think, again, that it's very important that the public understand what is going on over at the court. And the recent incidents, I think, have contributed a lot to public understanding of what's going on. That puts pressure on the court. As I said earlier in the program, I think other judges are getting really fed up, and that's going to put pressure on the court. There's a body called the Judicial Conference, which oversees the administrative side of court life, right? If you think of a judge, half of the judge's life is adjudicative rendering decisions, hearing cases, listening to witnesses, writing the opinions. And the other half is administrative. It's like running the show, filing the ethics forms, making sure that the lights come on, all the stuff that is makes the first part possible. And in that administrative part, they are like, they can be regulated just like anybody else. 
and the judicial conference oversees all of that. So the judges who sit there, I think, have a very good opportunity to signal to the Supreme Court that they've had enough and it's time to clean up their act. They could probably actually do it themselves, and that would put so much pressure on the court that they would have to do something. It was the judicial conference that just acted to clean up the Scalia trick of not disclosing free vacations because he got a personal invitation from the resort owner whom he did not know. I don't think they liked that very much, and they really responded robustly to clean it up and shut that interpretation of the rules down. So I wouldn't give up on the other judges as a source of corrective. Just one more uh, quick one on this. I, what did you make of the fact, because I can't let go of the Clarence Thomas of all this, what do you make of the fact that Clarence Thomas ruled in 2016 on former Virginia Governor Bob O'Donnell in a case where Bob O'Donnell was taking gifts and cash and favors? It's exactly the same issue he's now embroiled in. Does this create, you're both former prosecutors, does this create any problems, do you think? Huge. One of the very unfortunate things that the conservatives on this court have done is to disable corruption prosecutions against public officials. They have narrowed the ability of a prosecutor to make a case to a jury down to a specific payment for a specific vote on a specific occasion. And when you've narrowed the ability of the executive branch and of frankly, ethics investigators doing this to look at corruption and restricted it to simple quid pro quo bribery, which only the dumbest rube would come and try to do in Congress. It's way easier to influence people with money than that. Um, when you've restricted it down, it's hard not to believe that somewhere in the back of their heads, they weren't thinking the stuff this guy was getting looks a lot like what we do here. <laughs> Maybe we should restrict it so that we can't be prosecuted. It's, it's we carve it out. But it's really been unpleasant because in my lifetime, the ability of prosecutors to make pub public corruption cases against corrupt public figures has been dramatically disabled by conservative justices of the Supreme Court in ways that I don't think are justified, but clearly have a self-referential component to them given all this news. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This all, it's all of a piece with the discussion we had with you the last time you were on the show last year. You focused on the web of conservative dark money, $580 million worth that you would help to uncover. It would seem to be the tip of the iceberg, and it was driving the appointment of extreme right-wing judges to the federal judiciary. Since then, we now know that conservative billionaire Barry Side gave another $1.6 billion to this web, this dark web, the underbelly of politics. What else have we learned in the last year about this situation? Have we made any progress on it? Does it help at all that, that what we are now learning about the Supreme Court is shedding some light on all of this? It does. It's been extremely helpful. <clears throat> to have people understand the larger context of this, to have this narrow example in this one area of judicial ethics, because the general problem of that toxic cocktail of creepy billionaires and phony front groups and dark money millions and secrecy 
around amenable justices applies in spot after spot. It applies in how the justices were chosen by billionaires through this Federalist Society list stunt, how the Judicial Crisis Network just down the hall in the same building was raising dark money and spending on ads to support their nominations, how they funded Republican senators through the confirmation period, uh, and how once on the court, they funded these front groups to tell them what to do. And now it turns out they're actually fetting the justices with exotic and extraordinary trips and retreats and vacations and gifts. So when you see the whole piece together, it is even more nauseating than just the facts of the Thomas situation alone. So when we look at that whole picture that you just laid out so deftly, you have the inputs, millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars going through these right-wing front groups coming from, we don't really truly know where, and resulting in justices who are extreme and they have all the appearance of corruption. Not that I'm saying that Justice Thomas would have been a paragon of judicial ruling virtue were it not for the craven influence of Harlan Crow. I don't think that he has been corrupted from that standpoint. His ruling still would have been crappy. But it leads to this question, especially when you look at a ruling like Dobbs that is not only on shaky legal ground, but also badly out of step with the will of Americans. I, I have to ask, is the court entirely out of control at this point? And is it time for the U.S. Senate to take extreme measures, filibuster, to rein it in? Yeah, we don't get to change the rules of the Senate without a majority that will vote for those rules changes. And we've come across that before, and we haven't gotten there. We haven't gotten the votes. We tried very hard. We even actually tried to force the vote just to make sure that people had to, they couldn't just bluff. We called the bluffs and they weren't bluffing. So we really tried hard to do that in the Senate. I think there's just continued work and investigative work that can be done short of that. But you're right. This is a very serious problem. And the model people should think of in the problem is what I, what people consider to be regulatory capture which is sometimes called agency capture. If you want to have in mind the railroad commission that sets the rates for the railroad and everybody on the railroad commission was stuffed onto the railroad commission by the railroad barons. And so they always win, the railroad barons do. And they don't necessarily have to pay the railroad commissioner with a check each time he votes for them. They've just fixed the whole thing, captured the whole thing so that it goes their way. And that, I think, is what we have to consider is the problem with the court. It is a captured court. It's the baronial royalist approach to, to judicial decision-making. It's terrible. But yeah, I mean, let me ask this. Let me ask this. As a, let's, say, let's say we did do the filibuster thing and everyone said, all right, Senator Whitehouse, they wouldn't call you that because they're your fellow senators. We respect you more than anyone else on this. Write the plan. You're going to reform the Supreme Court. What would you do? Look pretty much like the bill I just described. You wouldn't expand the court. You wouldn't put in life term limits. I think I actually have a, a bill that does term limits, and I think that actually makes a lot of sense. 
On the question of expanding the court, I don't think we've done the homework yet mm. as Democrats to have people understand why something like that might be necessary. I always have the, the mental image that I have is somebody comes into the room, they come after Paul, and they've got a syringe in their hands, and they're trying to stick him with the needle. Ooh, well, I like Paul this. Go do? on. Yeah. Paul's going to fight back. He's going to swing a book at him. He's going to say, what the hell are you doing? Get out of it. Get out of here. Okay. Same thing happens. The person comes in, he's got the syringe, he wants to stick you with it, but it's your doctor. And you've had a conversation and the doctor knows what you've got. And he's explained to you how what's in the syringe is going to cure your illness and how you will feel better. And at that point, you're not swinging a book back at him. You're rolling up your sleeve to get the shot. There's a big difference in how people respond to something depending on how they have been educated about what's coming their way and why it's necessary. And I think that's our situation. I think if we get ahead of ourselves too much, then the Republican attack machine, which is very good, and for whom the Supreme Court capture is a top priority, will just do a better job than us out of taking that and shoving it back down our throats. Yeah. Do your homework in this world. I know you've got a hard stop coming up in very short order. If there was one thing you wanted to leave Americans with on this topic, one thing that you wanted them to know or remember, what would it be? Dark money in politics is dangerous and toxic, and it has begun to influence the Supreme Court. We can fix that, and we must. There's no better note to get out of here on Paul, let's wrap. I'll do the honors because the senator has already exposed my secret syringe plan. For former Congressman Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. Senator Whitehouse, thank you so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. My pleasure.